If you've been with us any length of time over the past several months, you know that we have been studying the book of Ephesians for a while and that we've come to the place um, that studies the armor of God. In fact, we are near the end of this wonderful section of Paul's letter that draws on the imagery to affirm and reiterate much of what he has already addressed in greater detail through the beginning parts. When I say the suit of armor given to the Christian when, that we have been given, that it's not just there for our protection, but it also identifies us as the enemy of the one that is against us, that our faithfulness is there to keep it on, and even when we are faithful to keep it on, we are targets to Satan's schemes. When we say spiritual warfare, it's easy for our minds to get wrapped up in the speculation of the cosmic powers and forces that Paul has explained to look and to conjure up even more images of the attacks that Satan and his demonic following might have upon Christians. But I contend this morning with you that especially in light of the weapons that Christians are called to put on, that the flaming darts of Satan are quite subtle. Especially in the time that we live in today, in our context, and I don't think that this is anything new. Satan's ploy against the church is deceptive. In fact, his tactic for most of time has been this way. You see, in the context of Paul originally writing this letter, we must understand he's writing from prison to a church that he planted in Ephesus. And he's telling these saints in Ephesus to be encouraged to stand despite the attacks of the enemy and all of these things with the reminder that he is an example of persecution. These people in the church, they needed to be encouraged, but ultimately the church was protected in a greater sense. The church was protected in that persecution in the first, second, and third century preserved the church. There were no false converts. No one in the church would have made a profession of faith in the name of Jesus Christ and risk being put on a cross like that of Christ if they didn't actually believe the gospel that was being presented to them. Now, this is a wonderful period of church history that we can look at. And in the first century of Paul's day, it's a great confidence that he's able to write in the church in Ephesus from prison and exhort them the way that he has. You see, something amazing happens when we look at what was transpiring as the early church began to spread through the four provinces. Something amazing in history had happened and that the Roman Empire had come to power and the Greek language had become so pervasive in the land that it was a almost universal language. And what's even more interesting is that when we look at Greek manuscripts and we look at the language that Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus was written in, it's written in a particular type of Greek called Kani Greek. Now, there were other Greek dialects. In fact, there were more educated and, and, and more literarily competent languages that Paul could have written in. But we find Koine Greek is the common Greek. Ancient archaeologists have found grocery shopping lists written in the language that the New Testament was written in. They found 
wills and, and last testaments, personal letters, just like the letter Paul is writing here. Bill Mounts writes, there are two lessons that can be learned from this. As Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, that's Galatians 4.4, 4, and part of that fullness was a universal language. No matter where Paul traveled, he could be understood. But there's another lesson here that is a little closer to the pastor's heart. God used the common language to communicate the gospel. The gospel does not belong to the erudite alone, to the scholars and the clergy. It belongs to all people. You see, persecution in the early church, the gospel was given to all people. But those who made a genuine profession in faith, the church was preserved and had genuine converts of regenerate church membership because persecution preserved it. Peter, writing about this persecution, 1 Peter 1.6 says, So that, tested and genuous of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found as a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The most detrimental attack of Satan on the early church, I believe, came about in 311 A.D. Some of you history buffs, I know there's a few out there, know that that is when Constantine made the religion of Christianity the national religion for the Roman Empire. Now, why would I say that that is the detrimental attack of Satan? Why would I draw a parallel to that in the flaming darts of the enemy? Why would I, getting ready to preach on this last element in the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, why would I draw a parallel to Constantine's universal religion and say that it is the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Because persecution stopped. As a consequence, no longer was the church primarily made up of regenerate church membership, but it became commonplace for man who was not regenerate, who had not experienced the call of God, who was not saved, who did not have the indwelling of the Spirit, who had no business with a breastplate of righteousness because there was no righteousness in him, who did not know truth to invade the church. When we talk about spiritual warfare, the most important thing that we can understand is what Jesus writes or tells Peter in Matthew 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. There is no attack that can come against the church that will ever bring it down. God's word gives me confidence to say this morning that it does not matter what happens in history and politics and global movements. The world may fall apart. The church will still exist until the day that Christ returns. The church. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Why can I say that with confidence? And what's the warning in light of this in spiritual warfare? Well... It's that you cannot kill the church from the outside. You certainly can kill it from the inside. Constantine's edict, making Christianity the national religion, caused and began what became a new form of persecution as unregenerate church members became commonplace. 
as the church that was meant to be led by God's Spirit was led by people who didn't have the Spirit in them. And we enter into a period in 500 A.D. that we call the medieval period. It lasted until about 1500 A.D. We saw the response of many genuine Christians during this time. The Catholic Church became the national religion of Rome, and they had leaders that weren't even saved. I make reference to the Reformation period because it was around 1500 A.D. that we start to see translations of the Bible. By the way, one of the works of the Catholic Church was to make what was originally written in a common language, Koine Greek, so that it was accessible to all people, not the possession of clerical teachers or those that had gone to school, but they began to make it privileged so that no one else had it. And in 1500 AD, when we start to see the translation of the Bible and its return to the common people, something takes place. These people say, I don't want to worship this false religion. I want to worship the God of the Bible. And we see the Reformation begin to take place. Even before that, we saw the monastic tradition, the, the people becoming and forming monasteries, was in response to the invasion of unregenerate church members in the church so that those who actually wanted to pursue God could separate and distinguish themselves from people who had no place being in the church to begin with. Until the Reformation period appeared in church history, spurred on by the prevalence of the accessibility of Bible translations, the church was dominated by a confusing, mystical, non-God-fearing form of faith. Tyndale and other translators paved the way to cause genuine converts within the church to no longer look at a monastic life as the solution to pursuing God's will, rather to return to biblical authority. And we call this movement the Reformation. We owe our tradition today as Baptists to this tradition, this era of resurgence and returning to biblical authority. And as we begin this morning, I ask, as Satan has already employed his schemes in 300 AD through the work of Constantine, has he done the same thing in our tradition today? When we consider the way that they viewed the Bible and what was detrimental to the church, that we looked at it as something that only belonged for the scholars or those that had gone to seminary or those that were spirit-led as only those that were put in certain offices, have we adopted the same problem that was present in 300 A.D.? What is the armor of God? Does it belong only to those who are trained? No. It belongs to every person who is saved by grace. What is the church of God? Is it an institution led by somebody who can run churches? No. It is an organism representative of the King of God on earth, ran by all those who have the Spirit of God in them. With that said, let us read our text. First, we'll pray. Father in heaven, as we gather here this morning, we realize there are many who are unable to be with us because of sickness and because of 
just what's going on in people's lives. And God, we do pray for those of our church members that are experiencing this, that you would just be with them and give them strength and give them the recovery that they need. That some of those who aren't here this morning are not here because they're grieving, because they had to travel to visit lost ones. And God, we thank you for the confidence that we have in you to face death and all of these things. God, I pray for our church and I pray for our people. As we gather this morning and prepare to worship you, Lord, I ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law, that you would give us insight, that you would give us discovery, and that you would bless us during this time. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I'll read out loud, and I ask that you would read with me. I'll begin in verse 10. But our focus will be on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God found in the second part of verse 17. The Word of God says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, this morning, before we look at our text, I have a confession that I should share with you. Our text is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. This elicited early in the week a reaction from my little bitty preacher heart that got so excited to talk, to talk about the Word of God. My little preacher heart wanted to come here this morning and share about how the Word of God is sufficient, how the Word of God is powerful, how it's sharper than any two-edged sword, how the Word of God is living, how it transforms, how it convicts, how the Word of God is providential. Now, I share with you this confession not because of anything of the, any of those things are untrue. But my confession is, is that before I had done the work of studying this passage, I thought I was ready to preach it. I share this confession not just because it's good, but also as a warning to you that when we look at the Word, we must be careful to understand it in its original context. When we twist things and we insert our own understanding onto them, even our presuppositions of biblical facts, 
about the nature of the Word of God, we miss the point, and the Word loses its power. You see, when I have heard uh, and even read commentaries on this passage, one of the things that stands out is that a lot of people spend a lot of time preaching about the Word of God, and they skip over the fact that this is the sword of the Spirit. I hear no word mention of the word Spirit at all. Our focus this morning, and we will return to this this evening at 6 o'clock, will be on the sword of the Spirit. And to make it clear, the Word of God is not referring to Scripture in this passage. Just to make sure that I don't lose all of you as we expound upon this, let me point out Paul's original context in writing. The Bible wasn't written yet. When he wrote this letter, the books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy weren't written. Titus wasn't written. All the epistles of John weren't written. Jude wasn't written. Peter hadn't written his letters yet. The whole corpus of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, wasn't completely written. Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus to take up the sword of the Spirit. I think this provides for us some interesting insight into the effectiveness of Paul as an apostle and a church planter, and even in our model of missions as a church today. See, looking at this text in the original context, we see Paul here writing and encouraging the church to persevere, even though he's the example of perseverance. Um, persecution. He's writing this letter when the Bible hadn't been completely written. He's being carried along, in fact, by the Holy Spirit as he writes this letter because this is God's Word breathed through him. And, And our understanding of that then is almost as if God replaced the air in his lungs as it passed through his vocal cords, or in this case, as the pen moved along the page to inspire this text. It is both written by Paul and inspired by God. And so we look at this, this nature of the Word of God that he's pointing us to, and we have to make note that Paul does not use the word that I would expect to refer to Scripture when he says the Word of God. I mean, that was my presupposition coming into this passage. I thought he was saying the Bible is your most powerful weapon here, but that would mean that he would have used the word graphe. And most of you are probably familiar with the word graphe already, and you don't even realize it, but you've heard of an autograph. That's two Greek words, autos, they, them, graphe, writing. It's their writing. Graphe means word. It's the written word. It's the scripture. While Paul relied in his missionary zeal on Old Testament scripture as a basis for his preaching and teaching and everything that he did in his churches... That is not what he's making reference to here. Instead of the word that he uses for word is the word reuma, which means utterance. It means utterance, like a guiding, like the Spirit guiding the church. Now, I want you to think about this before you think I've gone totally crazy. But when we look at Paul's missionary journeys and we look at his effectiveness, and if you're a Christian, you should be passionate about this. 
If you're a Christian, you should care about the apostle's method in sharing the gospel in the provinces that he went to because the church erupted during Paul's ministry and he didn't spend three years or five years with people. He spent as little as five months in the provinces and when he left, there was a whole church, not a baby church, but there were pastors and deacons and there were people leading the churches and there were missionaries in the churches that were going out deeper into the provinces. By the end of the third century, there were over, most likely, over a thousand congregations. What was Paul doing that was so effective? I mean, when you compare this with our missionary efforts today, something that stands out to me as incredibly just mind-boggling. Our missionaries don't spend five months planting a church. You know what we've accomplished in five months? Well, we might just be getting our feet underneath us. Paul, on the other hand, in five months, already had pastors. He already had elders that were ordained. He had already baptized converts. What? Why do our missionary methods not look as effective as Paul's? Well, I think it comes back to the same problem that we see with Constantine. The church, if you're taking notes this morning, or if you're not taking notes this morning, if you write one thing down, I pray that you would solidify this. The church must be led by the Spirit. The weapon that we are called to take up, the sword, is the sword of the Spirit. By contrast, when we look at our missionary methods, our reason for saying that we cannot leave these converts for where they are at is because we say that we haven't trained them effectively. They haven't been raised up. They don't look exactly like us. You guys, churches are not supposed to look like other churches. We don't have the confidence that if we baptize someone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they're actually a regenerate member of the church and that they are led by the Spirit in equal measure to you and I. It doesn't matter if you are a baby Christian, a mature Christian, every member of the body of Christ, if they are truly regenerate, is led by the Spirit of God. This is where the church gets all of its power. This word utterance that Paul uses, instead of graphe, using the word uh, reuma, we see it used in Romans 10, verse 6. Jesus, when, I'm sorry, Paul, when writing the Romans and contrasting the nature of the law that uh, was given by the Old Testament and how it's replaced with the New Testament says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim to you. Again, the word for word that Paul uses in Romans 10.6 is reuma. The same word used here to make reference to the utterance, the outpouring of a saint being led by the Spirit. 
having genuine conviction, having genuine guidance, having genuine burden, having all of these things. The Word is reference to the Spirit's guidance. The guidance in our lives and everything else. And with this understanding, the next piece that we start to look at, this equipping that comes from the armory of God and being in His Spirit, we understand that His instruction in this letter is to be filled with the Spirit. Paul's already said this in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And if you have a memory good enough to jump back all the way to May 8, 2022, when we were in Ephesians chapter 5, our understanding of what it means to be filled by the Spirit comes from what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.13. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this. If you are saved, if the church gathered together today is made up of regenerate church membership, this is incredibly important for us to get our heads around. There is no asking for more of the Holy Spirit to come and to guide our lives. We've been sealed. No more is getting in. Also, no more is getting out. If you've been saved by God's grace, you're preserved by God's grace. What it means to be filled by the Spirit is likened to what Ephesians 5.18 has made reference to just before that. Do not get drunk with wine because that is debauchery. It's this idea of being controlled. It's to be holy. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be holy. And what does holy mean? Holy means to be under or at the complete disposal of God. All of me for all of Him. To be holy means that I am completely God's. Set apart from everything else in this world, I belong to Him. My preferences belong to Him. Everything that I could possibly do on my own is His. That's what it means to be holy. To be filled, then, is to be in submission to whatever His will is. Loved ones, as I think about this and the different ways that I have been filled with the Spirit over the years, guess what? I have not always been an obedient child. I remember when God was calling me into the ministry. I was at Walmart. Things were going well. I, was even, I, would, I would even go out on a limb. I was pretty successful. I might have even been better at doing what I was doing than I am at being a pastor. And I'll tell you the reason for that, too, in a moment. But God said, Derek, you're going to surrender to the ministry. He told me that. Now, did he speak audibly to me? Did he whisper in my ear? No, he didn't do that, but he told me. His spirit guided me in this acknowledgement. I was being told that this was the next step of obedience, give up everything that I had so that I could be completely his. He told me. And I said, okay, God, how about... No. Who cares if I'm obedient? I'm just going to keep doing what I want. The call into ministry was I could not escape it. Everything in me, part of it was I wanted it. I wasn't completely unreluctant. But 
I did want it, but it didn't make sense. It didn't line up. I mean, I, I had Michelle to care for. My life was, it just wasn't in the place. I didn't need to be making major moves. I was a young man. No, drop everything. And I even tried to reason with God. I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I think I'm pretty smart. I thought I could argue with God. Hey, God, I don't know if you've heard me sing, but I've heard me sing. You want me to lead worship? That's a joke. <laughs> hey, God, <laughs> you want me to preach? I don't know if you've heard me talk, but I've heard me talk. I'm not that good at it. God, what, what are you asking me to do? Well, I had to come to terms with the fact that God leading me in the Spirit was Him telling me not to worry about what came next. It was to be obedient to Him in the moment. Even as a pastor, here's what I've learned. I think the difference in success, here it is. You can't be a pastor unless you're filled with the Spirit. Every step of the way. Every office of the church is totally dependent that we take up the sword of the Spirit. You cannot have a good pastor if they are not filled with the Spirit. You cannot have a good deacon if they are not filled with the Spirit. You cannot be a good church member if you're not filled with the Spirit. And amens rang through the building. Amen, that's true. Yeah, preacher. You can't do anything outside of Him. He wants you to be dependent on Him. He continually pushes us back to being dependent on Him. We must be filled with the Spirit, the promised Spirit that comes and dwells within the believer. Christopher Ashman, writing on the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, writes, Promised in the prophets for those of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church by Jesus Christ through the power of His resurrection. The Spirit now brings believers into communion with the Father and the Son through the new birth, fills the believer with love, with the love of God, works holiness in the lives of believers, and convinces people of the truth of the gospel. Believers ought to seek to be continually filled with the Spirit in order to love others through our words and deeds, seeking to build up the church through the gifts of Jesus Christ that He has given us for the church. Four works of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings new life in us. This is the doctrine of regeneration that we spoke about as we looked at the helmet of salvation. Regeneration. New life. The Spirit causes love inside of the believer. Did you know you don't even understand love unless you've been touched by God's love? One of the marks of real evidence that a person has come to faith is that they have a compassionate heart, especially for the brothers and sisters of the faith. The Spirit causes us to have the ability to live a holy life. That's the breastplate of righteousness. That's the imputation of righteousness. The Spirit convicts. John 16, 8, Jesus says, And when He comes, He, the Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Four evidences of being filled with the Spirit is that believers are pursuing God. They're pursuing God. Ephesians 5, 18, they're being filled with the Spirit. 
every day, every moment, they are contemplating, what is your will, God? Give me direction, guide me, lead me. What burden do I have in my heart that I need to respond to? Lord, how are you guiding me even with what trouble is bothering me that I need to be bold about bringing up? God, is there any sin inside of me? Here's my heart, Lord. Come and take it. Walk through it and show me if there's any impurity in it. Believers should love others both in word and in deed. Hebrews 13 verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 1 John 3 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life. This is how you can know if you've actually been saved. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Our exhortation is to build up the church. The Holy Spirit guides us and gives us the ability to build the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. Again, everything in the armor of God is pulling from what Paul has already written. He writes previously, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, we're raised up, we're mature. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we know what it means to live in disobedience and what it means to live in obedience. And we confess because we know what it means to live in obedience. Every step of the way when we're in disobedience, we confess it because we want to get back. Constantly repentant, constantly regenerate, constantly relying on God. Constantly pursuing Him. Oh, and we know when we've stepped out of disobedience because, well, where'd that love for the brothers go? I don't know. Where's the unity in the body? Well, I don't know. Where are the believers pursuing God the way that they ought to? Well, I don't know. You know what it looks like when the whole church is filled with the Spirit? It looks like a whole church that cares about what the Bible says. You know what it does whenever the whole church is filled with the Holy Spirit? We're able to plant churches in five months like Paul did. Do you know why Paul had the confidence to be able to leave entire congregations who were not mature in their faith in less than five months? Because he said, they've been saved the same way that I've been saved. The same spirit that is in me will guide them. You know where popery came from? The idea that we needed appointed leaders to guide the church instead of letting them be spirit-led? Well, I don't know if all these people are actually led by the Spirit. We better put someone in charge. What hogwash. Friends, if you don't know if everyone in the church is led by the Spirit, you shouldn't be a church. 
You should care about regenerate church membership because without regenerate church membership, you have Satan infiltrating the church. People who are children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 1, leading the church, making decisions for the church, guiding the church, resisting the church, not being spirit-led. You have stagnating assemblies. Paul's method for missionary Methods reveal that he relied upon the Spirit within the churches. Even when he wrote letters to these churches after the fact, he beseeched them and appealed to them to listen to the Spirit guiding him, to understand his authority, not just as an apostle. Rarely did he ever even actually appeal to that. He said, the same Spirit that's in me is in you. Listen to this. I marvel at Paul's missionary effects. I look at his efforts and I am amazed. And I think that's the way that the church should be operating. The church in Ephesus was notably one of the longest places that he stayed during his missionary journey when he was planting churches. And I look at the way these assemblies were established. Christians were converted, elders were appointed, local, visible, self-supporting, self-governing, self-reproducing, self-theologizing churches are formed. The apostolic model of church planting puts missions efforts today to shame. It puts even our churches to shame. We see this consistently in the Acts of the Apostles. Why does it take so long to plant churches today? Has God's method changed? That's a question we should ask. We contend that we have to stay and train and raise up these men and women who are infants in the faith, that they need to be taught to think like us, to act like us, to reason like us, to set all of their culture and social structures to the side and look like the Western church. We aren't that great. Roland Allen, a missionary methods, writes, The fatal mistake has been made of teaching the converts to rely upon the wrong source of strength. Instead of seeking it in the working of the Holy Spirit in themselves, they seek it in the missionary. They put Him in the place of Christ. They depend upon Him in allowing them or encouraging them to do this. The missionary not only checks the spiritual growth of the converts and teaches them to rely upon this wrong source of strength, he actually robs them of the strength which they naturally possess and would naturally use. We could take this quote and we could actually apply it not just to missionaries, but pastors. Pastors who have come into churches and tried to run everything for themselves, do things the only way that they want to, to teach people that they don't actually need to read their Bible, that they don't actually need to be led by the Spirit, instead of relying on the Spirit that's inside of the whole church, rely on the man who preaches on Sunday morning. Church, I'm asking you I'm, as earnestly as I can. Do not do that. Do not do that. You are the church. The only strength we have against the enemy looking at spiritual warfare is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Spirit of God that guides you the same way it guides me. And by the way, that means that you need to be in prayer as much as me, that you need to read your Bible as much as me, that you need to seek God's will as much as me. And take it a step further, not me, but Christ. Be like Christ. 
pursue Him wholeheartedly in everything, that the church would have real power. The problem, immediately after Paul's day, I made reference to in my introduction this morning, was this infiltration of unregenerate church membership. These church members that were not led by the Spirit. This issue that that came about with the monastic tradition, the medieval era, and then finally we get to 1570, um, the, the early 1500s, I guess it was 1522 when Tyndale's Bible was published. And the Word of God becomes accessible. Church, you need to realize this morning that as we read this, and I make the observation in helping us to exegete and understand what this text says, that while the church in Ephesus didn't have the whole canon inspired scripture, we do. This is our canon. This is the power and the privilege of the church today that we have the whole inspired word of God. We have a canon and 66 bullets to go in it. Load it. Boom. This is the power of the church. This is the power that we have in relying on the spirit that we would be dependent on his word as a church. I'm so thankful for Tyndale's Bible, for the publication of Bible translations that made it accessible again, for the Reformation that takes place in the early 1500s. Let me just for a moment think about where our tradition comes from, even with 1517 with English Puritanism beginning to form, and then 1648, the publication of the Cambridge Platform, Jonathan Edwards preaching in 1703 in America, and revival literally sweeping the country because the church, for the first time in 1500 years, I'm sorry, wait, no, 1,000 years. The first 500 years of church history aren't that bad. But for 1,000 years had been dependent on a person who was not even led by the Spirit to guide them. Here we have the most amazing thing taking place. God's Word revolutionizes, wakes up the church, and the church, instead of doing this monastic tradition and trying to find their way, has real power in preaching. As people understand the doctrines of God and all that He has given us, in Him calling us, in Him guiding us, and churches are dependent not on the leadership of some external force telling them how to run themselves, but their congregational particular churches. And the church is able to guide itself as it reaches the community around it. What an amazing era, not just in history, but in the kingdom of God. I'm so thankful for preachers like Jonathan Edwards. Even reading some of his sermons today, I realize how far the church has fallen. The problem Because Satan doesn't stop. Satan doesn't stop. In about 100 or 200 years' time, just like the early church, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, Constantine creates the Catholic Church. 4th century, 5th century, things get bad. Medieval period starts. And then the Reformation in 1500 A.D. Jonathan Edwards comes and preached, Great Awakening takes place, and we see revival and the power of God being used by the churches in 1700. And then, a couple hundred years later, revival preaching becomes the norm. Preachers come, and they water down the gospel. They water down the real power of God. So much so that 
Even a few years ago, we would have said that America is a Christian country because most of the people consider themselves Christians. And we see the church today is comprised as much, if not more than, of unregenerate memberships than regenerate church membership. And we see all of these different divergent tactics and leadership structures within the church. Loved ones, you are the church. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit to guide us in this. As I look at church history and I look at the example that goes before us and I look at Paul's warning in Ephesians chapter 5, my concern is is that we would be entering into another medieval era of church authority where church members don't read the Bible for themselves. The problem in our day comes from the generalizations of the revivalist and itinerant preachers. You don't need that. You need the Spirit of God inside you to guide you in every decision. Being led is what makes us the church. That's why we're congregationally led. I'd be terrified if you asked me to make every decision for the church, not just because there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, but because I know the invasiveness of sin. Paul tells us to take up the whole armor of God because sin is blinding. Understand them. That as we assemble together and as we worship together, this is something that we all must be participating in. The missionary effect and everything else that Paul had is a power that came from God and it's a power that still exists today. Take up the sword of the Spirit because that is the power of the church. And as I say this morning, I want you to also realize that as your pastor, the different... Well, not different, but that I don't have the right to do things my way. (coughs) That I need your participation if the church is going to have any power, biblical authority on earth. I have to do things God's way. We have to to realize our position and our relationship to one another. The way that we're called to function as a church, it is a core element of this armor of God because the armor is not meant to be worn at your home in private. It's meant to be worn with the rest of the Salvation Army. I think about that every time that I come up here as I think about our responsibility together as a church and I try to press this importance upon you that you would understand it too because the Bible tells me that those who desire to teach desire an honorable thing but also that I will be hold to a stricter standard of judgment because I've been entrusted with the care of your soul. And not just the souls of those who are gathered here this morning but every 180 church members that exist on our church roll. By the way, when's the last time we had 180 people here? To tell you the truth, I think only about a third of those people I would recognize if I saw them on the street. God's still going to hold me to that standard. I need you to be the church. I know the sneakiness of sin, and I know that... 
the way that it can work people up and how it can distract us and how it can divide us on tiny issues. And I don't think I get worked up about things that don't matter. I see how sin can creep in and I see how we can be attacked from within and how we must stand against the wiles of the devil. How we must stand together with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. We must be united in our submission to one another, our recognition of church government as an expression of the kingdom of God. An expression of the kingdom of God on earth because our mission is bigger than what happens here. We have to bring the gospel to the whole world. Church, I have hopefully not brought too much church history and nerdiness into this message this morning. But we should care about the way we engage in missions, not just around the world, but in our community. And to do that, we must realize that the church will not be effective at bringing the gospel to one person if the church is not exemplifying what Christ wants His church to look like. By the way... The church will not exemplify Christ's church unless every member is participating in the way that he wants him to. As we practice, we love to quote Ephesians 4.15. That we should speak the truth and love to one another. Loved ones, we have to realize that all of this comes together. It culminates in that speaking the truth in love is actually being the church. Caring for one another, protecting one another, watching after one another. And we must not be like the world that stops at the part of the passage that gives us butterflies in our stomach. We must read the whole thing. Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way and in him who is the head, into Christ. We must be maturing in our faith. Engaging and contending with God's Word, interacting with one another, bringing the Word to one another as a form of exhortation that would stir one another up. Joined together, the Bible goes on, in Christ from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And it goes on even further that it says, and he tests, Paul says, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, but that their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy and practice of every kind of impurity. Speaking the truth in love is... Grow up in the church so much so that you would be a mature believer participating in every element of the church. Every element of the church. We want the power of the Spirit to lead us, that it would conquer spiritual warfare that draws, in, draws us in from the outside. We must take up the whole armor of God that we would be led by the Spirit. The Spirit of God who is in us. We have to be led by the Spirit. Loved ones, you want the power of God's Spirit lived out in your life. We have to grow up. We want the power of the Spirit in our lives. We have to get up. And ultimately, we have to dress up. We are living in a time, loved ones, 200 years after the revival of the preachers that I've mentioned that propagated the gospel, especially in our country, 
preachers that pointed to Christ more than they pointed to themselves. As the gospel, their central message, they preached a gospel that drew people to Christ. And we look around us at churches among us who I think are no longer preaching the same gospel that truly saved people, but a gospel that got people worked up in such a way that they didn't actually pursue Christ. Rather, they pursued some sort of fire insurance from hell so that they could continue living their life however they wanted. I'm not concerned with reporting large numbers to impress men. I'm concerned with seeing souls saved. When we ask, what does it mean to be filled with God's Spirit? And I'll conclude with this. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 37. we find that God's interaction with His people has not changed. As we look at spiritual warfare among us, as we look at things that could easily distract and divide us, Psalm 37 verse 1 says, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Church, we have nothing to be afraid of in this time or age. God has called us to the perfect age. The age that He has placed us in is the age that He has told us to preach the gospel in. That we would have the full power of the Spirit of God as we seek Him and His guidance. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and be faithful. Befriend faithfulness. Does this passage not perfectly mirror the armor of God that we have studied for the past six weeks? The belt of truth is our trust in the Lord. The breastplate of righteousness is our command to do good. The shoes of peace are the befriending of faithfulness or the gospel of peace. Psalm 37 verse 4 goes on, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Does this not summarize these last two offensive elements? The shield of faith is delighting in everything that God delights in. And Psalm 37, our understanding is that if we are faithful to delight in God, He gives us the desires of our heart. Well, that's the sword of the Spirit, the desires of the heart that come from being led by the Spirit. And I caution you, because I haven't had time to preach all four points of my sermon. So far, we've made it through one, and and that's all right. As we look at that, I caution you to remember the rest of this passage, that today we do have the whole inspired Word of God before us, and that God will never lead you in a way that contradicts His Word. We have a testing mechanism as we seek to pursue God's will in our lives and we shouldn't be afraid. 
We shouldn't be afraid to speak up about things that we see that concern us. Rather, we should rely on the exhortation and the equipping of the saints among us. That's why it, the whole church has to be spirit-led. But as we do that and we see things, the Word of God is our ultimate authority of measuring truth. What a blessing we have. What a blessing we neglect. I invite you to return this evening and we will finish looking at the sword of truth. The initiative of the sword. How it permeates our lives. The inspiration of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And ultimately, the interpretation of the Spirit, which is how we read the Word of God. Father in heaven, I thank you for my church family. God, I thank you for calling me into this family, for giving me a family when I had none. God, I, I thank you for guiding your church and protecting your church. God, I pray that we would leave encouraged today to know the power that comes from you and that you would give us guidance as we pursue your will, not just as a church, but in our individual lives. Father, thank you for who you are and for showing me who I am. Help me to be like you and guide me in your ways. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.